I love change. I, I'm a change maker, I think. With all the good and the bad, I'm a change maker. For me, give me a company, give me an individual, give me a project that needs to change. No one wants to touch. Give it to me. Give it to me. I love it. John. Peter. Jonathan Shaw. Welcome to the um, Brand Me podcast. Thank you. At Brandwagon, we have this saying, better people make better brands and better brands make a better world. We feel that you're one of those people who are putting better brands out there in the world and will make this place a better place. It's, it's great to have you here. As most people know out there, we're friends as well. Um, we do some training together. We've worked together. Yeah. We worked for each other, which has all been uh, made it interesting. And when I look at your career, your history, you know, the journey that it got you here, I don't even know where to start because there are so many chapters in the book of John. You know, we always used to joke, like, yeah. for me, the, the title of your book should be, Are You Sure? Yeah. John, you're a son, you're a brother, you've been CEO, you've been an author, you've become a cognitive behavioral coach, an event organizer, you've organized TV programs, you've produced TV programs, you've been a tech founder. When people ask you, who is John? Who do you say you are? Okay. Tough one, huh? Because as you said, I evolve, I constantly evolve. And it doesn't mean you're evolving to a higher level. Sometimes life throws curves, you know, so you, you're up, you're down. I, I have this theory of a wave. As long as you're moving forward, but and then you jump from wave to wave, you're fine. So who is John? Um, probably someone who values change. I love change. I'm driven by change. I'm driven by transformation. I'm driven by the journey and making things happen, whatever it is. And that's really interesting because it is true of human nature that people resist change. In fact, when we talk about, you know, change and transformation with organizations, when somebody announces change, people are scared, okay, Mela, here come the layoffs or here come the new procedures or here come the new process. Here comes in the new yeah. CEO that's going to make my life uncomfortable as a worker. So to be someone who is actually inspired and, and excited by change, I think that obviously already sets you out to be one of the uncommon amongst the uncommon. Yeah. I think it, it, what would be interesting for the people listening or watching this podcast, especially those who are not familiar with your story, is to trace back in time, you know, where it all started. And I think an interesting angle, which maybe, you know, most podcasts haven't got into is also your family life. Yeah. Because you're not an only child, right? No. You were one of... One of five boys. One of five. So tell us a bit, re retrace your steps. I know it's a couple of years now. Okay. Because we've just celebrated your 58th. Well, it's been a while yeah. now. We're looking forward to your 51st. <laughs> and hopefully you'll have a safe 51st. Yeah. And we'll talk about that story behind yes, the scenes. Yes, definitely. So John, go back in time. You're one of five kids. How so, did that alter your trajectory? And also maybe, you know, what were those life moments leading up to where you are today? Okay. Yeah. In a nutshell, one of five, the elders being, so the ages were quite compressed. That makes a big difference as well. So like 18 year old, who's my elder brother, another elder brother, like 17, something close, one year, three months, then seven year gap. So I'm 11, another brother who's like nine and a half and a two year old. So imagine five boys, my dad, um, working overseas, coming, traveling. So not very present in a way, but present in a lot of ways, but physically he used to travel and work a lot. So my mom had these five terrors to handle. Five men to do five it. Men to so that meant that um, I was very independent from a young age. 
super independent. I'm the middle child, super independent. And I realized straight away that um, you just do it your own way. So my mom or dad never had to sit down and do homework with me or push me to do homework. They could, like for all of, of us. And they gave us a great life. But um, I was there alone from a young age. So I, I decided what subjects I want to do, school, changing sixth form. I changed nationality at 18 what? without telling them because I could get a British passport. So I decided myself, imagine 18 year old, which is freaky now because, but at that age, so I used to do stuff. I got a part-time job, even though I didn't need because I wanted to buy my car. So what was your first job? Um, waitering at Zeppi's in Baluta. Of course. Yeah. Um, and, but I learned, I learned people, clients, difficult clients. I learned hard work. And you were sportive, no, as a kid. I used to play water polo. So, sirens and then Neptunes. And so, my childhood is that, is do it yourself. That's, that's, I think, clear for me. Yeah, and I think being one of five, especially the middle one, you know, I think you end up having to be independent. You know that if something needs to be done, you've got to do it yourself. Otherwise, it's not going to be done. And you also know that just waiting around and expecting something to happen, that's never going to happen. Okay, so... You know, that's your identity, uh, young guy, one of five big boys, water polo player, you know, change his nationality, because why not? Because he could. Yeah, I could. Um, and then you got yourself, you got into university, right? And, and no. then, no, okay. I wanted to be a pilot okay. all my life. You worked in aviation for a while, no? In New yeah, York at some point. Separate, yeah. So uh, I feel there's going to be yeah, a nice chapter still we get to the By point. By the way, I'm 50, it. not 80, okay? <laughs> Um, and I wanted to be a pilot. I also thought at one point of a like army air force pilot kind of stuff. Yeah, Top, um, Gun, Top Gun had just come out. And probably, I suppose. probably I was influenced like many. And um, so I just did my physics and maths mm -hmm. level in six months just to get them out of the way, got them and waited for Air Malta to have these call of applications. At the time being trained as a commercial pilot was, was like the in thing to, to be. So I, I go through a six month process. I actually get selected through 400 candidates to be in the last group. There was um, one, one last test. We were, we were in kind of, yeah. you know, and one test was called an EEG where they put wires on your head and they pass a current through your brain to, they don't do this test anymore, nothing clinically wrong or right, but it was part of the procedure. And apparently, if the output on this graph is not in a linear line, yeah. that means your brain cell patterns are not aligned in the same direction. No one ever failed this test. Obviously, I failed. You had to stand out somehow. So at the age of 20, my dream of being a pilot was, when I was so close, was shattered. Crushed, right? Crushed, in front of you just crushed. at the end. And I remember everything stopped for me. And um, because I didn't go to uni, I, because I didn't want to, I just got my yeah. levels for being a pilot. And I remember my dad taking me out for dinner, one of the few times, just me and him, because he saw I was crushed. And I remember him telling me, um, John, I, I think you could do more than being a pilot, but I never wanted to tell you this. Oh, wow. And, um, and he said, so, and I was like, feisty. I said, yeah, but there was something wrong. We should protest. I'm sure maybe they wanted me out because someone else wanted to go in. You know, he started thinking of everything. And he said, no, that's it. You don't. 
He said, you don't, um, I'm not going to support you going back and telling them you contest this, accept it. And oh. it was one of the few moments that we had this, and I'll never forget this. Um, I remember we were eating somewhere in Ari Lembisliam at this Asian restaurant. I remember it clearly now that you we're talking about it. So anyway, cut a long story short, I moved on. I decided, but I had a gap year. So my brother, who had a turnkey project company, says, well, why don't you come um, with me and help us around? And I'm really not Manuel. That's another thing. With five boys, you have division of labor. So two of my brothers were good with their hands. They can do all the manual work at home. I'm, I'm a disaster. Still, I'm a disaster. And I said, I can't do anything. He said, no, just sit around. We're, we're doing this big project. He had a job at the new Malta International Airport. Wow. So when my dream is crushed, he gets so I go to like a laborer, helping him move the scaffolding, because I had nothing to do. And I'm seeing plane, planes take off and land. And I remember that was a, a low, but very strong um, time in my life when I said, okay, you have to get out of this. Well, it's one of those moments, I suppose, either makes you or, or breaks yeah, you. Clearly, clearly it made you. Okay, so then what? Because then uh, I got a job quickly at 7up. Okay. They needed an assistant production manager. I still this gap here. And, um, and George, I remember the son, um, gave me this opportunity and I was on the shop floor working with these um, factory people, tough guys, mm -hmm. carrying boxes, bottling. But I was their assistant production manager. So, um, and that's where I learned and valued management and people and getting things done and work. And then I... Um, so you were quite young to get an insight on the shop floor of what it means to be, yeah. you know, one of the workers. I think that's quite... Uh, but quite I wasn't... And managing people from yeah. a young age. And I learned. Because you were managing people who presumably were much older than you. Much well. older. But I learned that with these people, you show them respect, they give you everything. So I learned that whatever the role... Show respect, yes, be tough when you need to be tough, but understand, communicate, and get your hands dirty with them. So and I remember these people, I had a great relationship, and um, they used to do their job because they don't want to let me down. And that's an interesting angle no, of leadership, because yeah. I think today, you know, we're, we've gone way over those days where it's just about people telling people what completely. to do. We've gone away from that kind of military style of working. Yeah, completely. I believe, and there's a great book, it's called Trust and Inspire, which I'll share with you after this. But the concept today is that we need to trust people to get on with their jobs. We need to teach them, but then we need to trust them completely. to take the best decisions and inspire them to do better and better than us. Yeah. So I think that concept of, you know, showing people respect, understanding, showing empathy, really getting to understand where they're, but also helping them understand where you're coming from, but also where you want to go is probably one of the biggest lessons now. True. And then you moved on to... Then I went to uni. Okay. What did you study? Become management. Become management, okay. I studied, I was training, partying, this, everything at, at the same time, you know, so it was great fun. And then when I, since I had worked before, I said, I need to do something extra, you know, and I needed money as well. You need when to sustain you. <laughs> so I created um, what was Morta's first promotions events company with Gianni. We called Gianni Pesho. And we were running clubs for three years. So that was, that was uh, yeah, a great time. That's a good part of my childhood, I remember that. Exactly. Recently, I met someone, um, a mother, a um, friend of my mother said, ah, 
you were the course my son used to come in late all those years. I said, <laughs> no, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> but um, it was different times. And this is where I started my first brand, Junkie Pesho. And this is where I realized. It just started from kind of nowhere. And it was very nowhere. different to the type of parties that all the other places used to organize because it was a, it was a moving yeah, um, we used to, yes, exactly. We used to had different locations yeah. and this. So John used to take care of the music and the creative side. I used to handle the logistics, the owners, negotiating. I used to stay at the door, crowd control and, and get things in order. But um, I realized how you used to build a brand. Mm -hmm. We had no social media. Our flyers were photocopies. <laughs> and we realized to how to give value to sponsorships, to brands, how to build your own brand. So we created a movement, we created engagement. Um, but it's hard work of guerrilla with no budgets. Of course. So the, the guerrilla marketing, which I s still feel is important, you know? Because it touches people, you know, effectively on a physical level, really truly, because we're not talking of the digital yeah. stuff, you used to do some crazy events and, you, and, and also, you know, building that reputation. And knowing who was going to be there, this, this is pre-mobile days, this is pre-SMS days, this is, you know, you, you kind of, you saw the flyer, you got the poster, you probably got a physical ticket and you turned up and some of the locations that you organize your events weren't actually like bank center in the middle of no, Paris. Exactly. Again, this thing of change, you go out and you create something. So I remember a club owner from Rabat had just invested and done Tattingers in Rabat and through a contact said that this club is empty, it's new, he needs someone. I said, yeah, let's do it. And everyone's telling me, Rabat, everyone used to go Who's to drive up to Rabat. And suddenly within, within a month, uh, hundreds of cars in Rabat Road, you know, um, going to this club and people. And then we had other clubs. But you keep on evolving yeah. and you keep on challenging. So th this is where the wave theory comes in for me. If you stay long, look, some people are destined to be in one career, one one job and one line, and there's nothing wrong, as long as they keep on growing within yeah. that row. Others are meant to move. So there's no right or wrong here. Yeah. In my case, I found, I used to get a kick by jumping from one wave to another wave, you know? So we're, we're at the stage where you're party producer and promoter. Yeah, uni student. And then I watched well. university. And playing water polo. And playing water polo, of course, why not? And then at that point in time is where you decide to, was this at the point where you started to launch Malta's first reality TV show, which was Flat 4? Or was it? Yes. Well, so I had this idea about Flat, Flat 4. 4. Because this is way before. This is way you know, before. Big Brother yeah, and all this. this we're talking 1998. I had this idea. I was 18. I remember watching the programs. I, um, I launched two things that year. Theatre Unplugged. Yeah, we'll concept. talk about Theatre Unplugged. And um, Flatform. So, so what flat, was I had this idea. Um, I was dating Nirvana at that time. And, um, and Johnny was one of my best friends. He used to organize events. And I had enough of events, late nights, loud music, you know, a bit too much, three years. And too mature for your age. Exactly. And um, so I had this idea of a TV program. I said, let me rent an apartment. I got it sponsored by one real estate company. Um, the flat number was number four. That's why the program was called Flat Four. And I said, I'll put Johnny and Nirvana in the apartment as if they're living together, two friends who can't stand each other. Johnny is Johnny, Nirvana was Nirvana. Knows. With a dog, with my brother's sausage dog, 
called Regina. And I'll unscript it, I'll send a guest, and we film it for about seven hours, six hours. They cook, they talk about life, they talk about their career, they talk about anything. And then we edit and can it into a one hour program. And this was shown on national TV, right? Shown on TVM. And it must have been quite outrageous at the time. We I had mean, a cult following. You had a cult following. We had a cult following. And um, the the soundtrack, the opening track was um, Our House by Madness, I remember. And, um, and we, and the dog, we did a voiceover. I got a girl to do a voiceover on the dog. And through the dog, I could take the piss of the guests, Johnny and Nirvana, because it was allowed, the dog is saying it. Amazing. And we used to go hardcore. And we used to discuss topics. And it was, we had a cult following. It used to be shown weekly and we did 13 seasons of it. So promoting cohabitation in very, very Catholic mold at the time, no? Very reserved mold, no? People believed that was real. People actually believed did they were a couple. People believed they were a couple. Uh -huh, okay. She was my girlfriend and I'm like thinking that my best friend is dating her. <laughs> And they lived together. So I remember even one on, on a church radio station, people were slamming flat four and this and that. That's not right. I suppose that's when and you know like that, that you've hit success. No? When, when you're being talked about on other radio Completely. stations, the people are complaining. Now it was interesting, but you know what? It was an amazing experience. Absolutely, um, for sure. Okay, so then, and Teatro Unplugged, again. Then Teatro like Unplugged, an idea to... about having something different at the National Theatre. And um, it's still ongoing. I just resigned from being a producer after 23 years. How does that feel? Good. Very good. The idea with Teatro Unplugged is basically bringing in musicians, bands who are typically on a, on a rock stage or on a, on a very different stage because you've even had DJs, you've yeah, had exactly. you know, different artists playing in the National Theatre. Yeah. In actually five different genres of music as well, not only rock. So five different mixing, opera, classic, piano, rock, pop, all in one event, but in short stints. So my wife tells me I've got ADHD, I don't know, maybe. So she said, you can't stand still, you always want change. So for me, sitting in a concert, listening to the same type of music for two hours, it would. It, I get bored. So I actually played on what I would like. What if you give me five different acts for 15, 17 minutes each? So it's fast moving. And all doing something very different to Completely. what they typically do. Exactly. So that happens and it's great. And I and it's fantastic that Julia Hickey will keep on producing. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I'm looking forward yeah. to, to watching the next show. Um, all right. So then what happened? So, so you're out of university, presumably by now. I'm assuming. Then I, I started doing some marketing. Of course. Youth marketing consultancy. Marketing. Uh, because you knew the audience. Because you knew I knew the, the market. Audience. You had I, some very successful brands. Theater Unplugged, Flat 4, gave me that kind of, of hands on. And I started it as well. Mm -hmm. But you learn more from doing. Of course. I always tell people university is great for the networks, friendships, and the way you think. But when it comes to practical, you need to get out there. Yeah. You need to work. And this is why... I sometimes don't agree with the stipend systems because if you don't have a stipend, you need to get a part-time job. Yeah. And through work, you discover so much, you know? And it's important to work, get your hands dirty. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? Super, super what, cool. What most students would think about yes. removing that stipend. No, I'm not like, saying remove it, I, but, I understand but the then point. the system used to penalize. You know, I never got a stipend because I could, because I used to work and have a second income, oh, I right. lost my stipend. Okay, so I was penalized because I wanted to work. Yeah. Got well, it? The message anyway. there is wrong. But then, yeah. okay. But so, anyway. so then you started doing youth so marketing. So then I did youth marketing, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then yeah. I went, then I suddenly decided I need to get out of Malta. 
What was it that pushed you to do that? I just realized that I'm growing older, 27. Oh, yeah, 27, well, I mean. But you're growing older. Of course. And I said, I'm going to get stuck here. And I wanted to push myself outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. Again, why? And you moved to? And I moved to Sydney for a holiday initially, stayed there for nine months, and then moved from Sydney to New York for another three years. Wow. And you were working for? And initially, yeah, I met a Maltese Australian had a big aviation company. And then he asked me to go to the States and run the thing for them in the so, States. So somehow the aviation industry exactly. keeps pulling you back exactly. and, and, and reminding you what this was done. B2B, eh? yeah, like ticketing, B2B, doing these okay. between airlines, supporting the, the local network that says this. But again, um, it was tough. Um, when you go to New York for a holiday, is great. When you go to live there, Could be very the lonely. weather, the seasons, you're lonely, you're there. You never make enough money in these cities you walk out of the door, cost you money, you know? And, um, but I was always comfortable because of my childhood in my own space. Yeah. So I remember I, there were days I spoke to either a client or uh, someone at a bar, that's all. And then you start building your network. So three years in, in the States helped me see the world differently, that we're just a number, we're nothing. You meet people who are, super successful and they're so humble. So you get out of the big fish, small pond syndrome. Yeah, you know? and I think that's really important. Funny enough, Lee and I were having this chat about, about the concept of living in Malta and, and, and doing so much in this country, but then stepping out of this. And I do feel that sometimes we do have this, uh, I wouldn't say it's an, it's an island case, okay? It is, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it is, relatively easy or you can do it relatively fast to become very successful in Malta as long as you're doing things right. Yeah. So if you want to build an agency, if you want to build a brand, if you want to build something, if you do all the right things, talk about music as well. If you're good at what you do, you can very, very quickly get to the top charts in yeah, Malta yeah. because obviously yeah. the amount of competition that you have is obviously not as huge. But very, very, very few people either have the courage to get out and let go of this, the local success to try and make it out on, on international waters. Those that do and those that you know persist do actually then achieve it. But it is very, very hard to find yourself on the number one track on the radio stations locally to be a no one and a nobody. And because of fear. Because of fear. fear. People are afraid. People are afraid to cold call because of the fear of rejection. Yeah. And I tell people, what's the worst case scenario? You come back, but do it. Let's talk a bit about failure because I think that's a really important thing. And we talk about, you've talked about the waves. And when we talk about the waves, you know, there's always like the, the beautiful crest, which is, you know, amazing. But there's also, you know, deep Below. down in the barrel of the yeah. wave. And if I had to look at your, um, at your career, you've had a number of those ups and downs. I remember yeah. when you were, so I think I'm gonna fast forward to Choose Malta. Yeah. Or Choose to Travel. ChooseMalta.com, yeah. Choose Malta started in 2005. When I came back from the States. Yeah, so, so no, 2005. 2005, yeah. At the time, um, I used to go around living in the States, seeing the online, living the online development, buying this, etc. I realized that we needed a portal travel portal and to promote incoming tourism, but in real time. So I actually used to go around hotels to try and convince them to so, come. So on just for those who don't know, okay. So this, there was a time before the internet and there was also a time before the internet where when the internet came along, booking a hotel, which is something that we take 
you know, a standard yeah. now, had to be done typically through travel agencies or you'd call up, you'd the book hotel, on, you'd give your credit card over details. the phone or through a travel agent. So yeah. you came in pre-booking.com with this concept. In was line with booking.com and line with them at the same time, okay. the same time with book. And I remember I eventually worked with booking.com on something as well. So I used to go to booking.com in okay. the office in Amsterdam when they were new. So, um, but again, it's the mindset of sometimes in business and people who are entrepreneurs, sometimes they launch something, they realize the idea is great, but they're a bit too early. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying I was early, but I had to go through the motions of trying to convince people on the need. Of course, it's, it's, a, it's a very big upward struggle when you're the first, exactly. especially then coming back to traditional Malta where things were happily staying the same because yeah. obviously with, you know, people didn't have to pay commissions and whatever. Yeah, yeah. But you very quickly you know, became successful. Because of the brand. Because of the brand. And you, you built the business, choose to travel, and then you had choose yeah, Malta, choose Cyprus, choose Dubai. Exactly. And you went from like a couple of, I remember I physically, I remember seeing you guys, there was you, there was Chris Knights, yeah, there was exactly. Kate Arrigo, yeah, there was a bunch of yeah. other people sitting down at Saddles discussing this new concept. So Chris Knights was now a partner at Brandon. Yeah. I mean, was one of, was the founder. tech yeah, yeah, yeah. founder Amazing effectively guy. at, um, yeah. at Chusa Travel. And you went from, you know, setting up this thing as a very sort of, you know, very typical, you know, startup fashion. Yeah. Um, you know, working within an apartment. I remember the apartment was in Pietan, no, I think, or yeah, something. Pietan, yeah. And then uh, all of a sudden you, you kind of got to the top of the game. It was 2008. You had two floors in this massive yeah, yeah. new apartment. You yeah, had, I think 20 people, developers. 20 develop I remember it was one of the first offices I ever walked into with an actual chamber. Yes, with yes, a table right. soccer yeah, table, table soccer. and playstations and this was pre yeah. the Silicon Valley Complete. stories and yeah, the concepts yeah. and obviously that, that was quite to me it was quite impressive to see that happening at the time I mean you were again ahead of the curve in talks of you know employer branding and employer benefits and employee um, this is a time where people had to be at the office at a specific time yeah. still dress up smart if you were yeah, working yeah. in an office put your shirt on get to work you have a one hour lunch break yeah. you did your no, break I used to cook for your... them and play chamba for two hours <laughs> and the company went you know to a to a huge successful yeah, level. It did really well. But then there then was the recession. Crisis. Yeah, 2009. So what happened then? We were burning more money than we were making. Mm -hmm. And this is where, if we were overseas, if we had funding, if we had um, seed investors, if we had venture capitals, and this is the struggle here, you see? Yeah. So we had a great idea. We used to rank for, on AdWords, if you, if you search Malta hotels, Hotel in Malta, we used to rank on Google organically before Expedia, before booking, even for other searches like Dubai hotels, hotels in Dubai. Wow. Chris was fantastic like that. Um, but because we didn't have millions of euros to spend money to promote the brand, we lost, a client did not know us. Mm -hmm. So there was an element of trust. So it's good to have a great brand, but then you need to get the message across and the values of the brand, and you need money to do that. Yeah, but I'm thinking at that level, international. Yeah, I think from a from a perspective of, of funding and having the funding to keep yes. it going, I think that was obviously one of the big areas. Obviously. There's obviously luck, and there's obviously the reality. You know, you were there before most of these hotels had a booking engine. 
Yeah. Then they came on board. Then they started to create their own booking engine. Okay. And then there was a direct consumer, which at that point in time, even Expedia and Booking.com had a hit because of at course. one point they were the only way you could have, Completely. you know, what, what we call the, the online travel yeah, agencies, yeah. the OTAs. Yeah. You know, there, there was a system that you basically had to, you know, go through Booking.com if you wanted to book somewhere else. But then all of a sudden you came to the point where hotels started inventing and Directly. building their own, yeah. you know, yeah. engines and, and, and booking engines, which yeah. I believe you supplied at some point in time as well. And yeah, you helped we them build them. Yeah. And then financial crisis hits, the world goes into one big tumble turn yeah. and keeps on spinning and spinning yeah. and spinning. And, you know, the high came with a big, yeah, exactly. you know, with a big hit. Yeah. I don't know if you feel like, but if, it would be great if you could share a bit of, of that moment when, when, you, when everything you've built and you were a very successful entrepreneur, co-founder in this amazing business, all of a sudden it started, when you started to see that decline and the decisions you had to take at that point in time, whether you took the right decisions, whether they were fast enough. I mean, looking at it now with hindsight, and of course, clearly you've survived and you've built other great businesses since and you've been very successful. How did it feel at that time? And, and, and what, what did you learn? It's tough because you'd be, for 24 hours, you're breathing the company name. You are the brand, you become the brand. Yeah. So choosemortal.com and myself were, were one. Suddenly it's, it's like you lost your name. It's like you lost your identity. And you lost it out there, but inside you, you feel you lost your purpose. Mm -hmm. What was driving you is suddenly lost. So you go in this gray area, now what? It happened, it happens, you mm -hmm. know, it happens even people go through phases. Of course. You know? And um, so when, but you're closely related to your brand, to your work, and not because I'm, I'm not a workaholic, I was never a workaholic, but I'm passionate about what I do and I want to do it well and I enjoy it. So suddenly what used to enjoy doing mm -hmm. is no longer there or mm -hmm. there's no more purpose, no more future. Mm -hmm. So you go into this inner voice. At the time I was not trained like I am now. And that voice, that inner voice, the monkey in your head, I call it, derails you completely. So it creates burnout, health issues. I, I had burnout twice. I used to get these, I used to lose eyesight sometimes with oh, burnout. Wow. And you feel like you're getting a stroke, which, you know, um, late nights, work, stress. Yeah. Financial pressures and the unknown, the uncertainty. And the responsibility. Know? And that responsibility. You have I, had I had to lay people off. People who were really attached to us were like were friends, family, with. friends and families. Yeah. And they thought they had a future. At one point, we we're talking of going bigger and overseas. Yeah, so course, suddenly, that. that dream is shattered. So you. I'm moving too much. No, it's fine. It? <laughs> so you um, actually find yourself in no man's land again. So now what? And then you have to So you talk about pieces. This is an interesting point, which, which we, we tap into quite often in the Umbrahamid podcast, which is the relationship between you and your own personal brand and the brand that you've built. And this was now what your third, fourth, fifth brand that you've built effectively. So you have now experienced the detachment of yes, you can yes, detach yes. yourself from a brand. You're not, no longer Jonathan of Junkie Pesho, you are Jonathan of Choose yeah, Malta. Yeah. But now all of a sudden you find that into a space where this is not you taking the decision, I want to stop this. This is 
everything, market forces, yeah. you know, life in general, deciding that this is the time for, for you to stop this. You very quickly bounced back. Yes. What did you do then? Then I, I had um, two friends who had a retail company. So they were in fashion and we decided to get a brand to Malta together and we built fashion business. So you bring, <laughs> you, you, you bring in the Tommy Hilfiger brand. So then we got Tommy Hilfiger to Malta. And these were, these were two friends who you used to work for. If you used to consult with consult the youth with marketing, the youth market. which was, and you were extremely successful. Yes, Tommy, yes. And because in the past, when we talk about O'Neill, O'Neill was one of the yes, biggest brands exactly. out there that yes, everybody exactly. had to be seen with. And exactly. you were always very, very good at, at creating that cult following exactly. for these type of brands. Yes, it was, yes, was yes. amazing. I remember you organizing the O'Neill wakeboarding festivals and all right, that. And yeah. A lot of people are still recovering from exactly. injuries from those days. Yeah. Some of those are our friends. Yeah. Um, okay, choose to travel is out of the question. So we do the fashion. You do the Tommy, fashion. Armani jeans, etc. But then four years down the line, I decided to move on and I needed a break. So I realized that in a way, being full on since the How age of 21, I don't know, maybe six years ago, four, yeah. oh Wouldn't no, longer, eight years ago, maybe at the age of 41. Yeah. I decide, you know what, life is too short, I'm tired. I actually started getting tired. And- um, Is that your first midlife crisis, John? Probably, yeah. Again, ahead of my time. Ahead of your time. Yeah, so uh, midlife crisis, I get into sports with our group, common friends, train, have a sabbatical. I said, let me take a year off. I'm, you write I'm a book? Do, write a book because I had nothing to do. Um, and then I also, decided to enter, start a new project, an amazing project, um, heritage, art, this in Malta. But obviously being a cultural um, heritage, an old place, which is in the, in the hands of a private company, is still constraints, planning, not planning. And I burn a lot of money. Yeah. I burn a lot of money in trying to see the project through. It doesn't go through. I was misguided by enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. So you let your excitement, your Completely. energy get away with my, yourself. My, and I miscalculated. I was maybe also had the wrong advice, but at the end of the day, it's my responsibility. Mm -hmm. So you can't blame anyone. But then I knew when to pull the plug. It was tough, but I knew when to stop when the hemorrhage. And this was, I cut my losses just before COVID. And I remember that's it, it's not gonna fly. You know, it's taking too long. Again, time burns yeah, money. Yeah. And that's the, the problem sometimes. So you can have brilliant brand, brilliant idea, but it's the rate of growth or how long something is going, because time of course, is, is passing. When so, you look yeah. back, when you look back at that time, because obviously I, I, I saw you live through that time. Yeah, yeah. There were moments where you were definitely at your happiest, or at least you looked at your freest. Completely. You had two motorbikes, you had the boat, you had, at one point you even bought a jet ski. Oh, classic. Yeah, small boat. Yeah, but, you, but that was your, your classic midlife crisis. Not to that, because I need to enjoy my time, not because Absolutely. from a money point no, of view. No, no, for sure, well. for sure. And you enjoyed it. Yeah, because you I had, had the time. time. I had time to use them. And I think, you know, one thing which is really interesting about that is that for me on the outside looking in, it looked like the great reset. Completely, I needed it. One thing which we missed out on pre-reset is that you decided to become an MEP. You tried to, you applied for the, the uh, I, European I elections. Love, uh, look, I... How the hell did that get into the whole story? Um, I, 
something was calling me to to push myself into something I never did again. Something that was bigger than you. Bigger something than that you, you felt also, like you had yeah. to contribute to. And also, but not from a social point of view, like mm -hmm. Mother Teresa to help. Don't get me wrong. Of course. It's, it's, I got a kick from people speaking, interacting, trying to add value, driving change. So in work, so work is so political. People are so political. Branding is political. You know, so families are political. Yeah. So, so I felt that, you know what? Okay, I can give a new twist to this approach. So my wife, who, who's very private, tells me, John, go for it, but on one condition, one try. She's smart. She knew one try wouldn't be enough. So she said, one try. <laughs> And no local politics was very tribal. And I did nine months campaign MEP. It was fantastic, tough. But I had to do my first public speak, go on TV, debate. I met some great people. I met some, I met everything. You go into people's houses, um, you meet people and you see Malta in a different, out, outside of your fishbowl, you know? Yeah. So um, I was very outspoken. I told the party, hey, listen, I'm, I'm a bit not liberal, I'm tolerant. So I'm not like, um, um, I value business because through business there's profit, profit gives employment and wealth. I'm against spring hunting, so I don't care. So I'm gonna voice that. It's, it's, I respect people who go for catch ads, their thing, but I have an opinion yeah, as well. Course. So I'm not, I'm not judging the individual, I'm judging the behavior, the act. And I was very, I, I was pro-civil union and I, I, I had my own stand. But then I realized um, I loved it, but then local politics was not for me. Yeah. Um, as much as I would love to, be able to contribute. Be able to, to do it. Yeah. It's not for me. Yeah. And this is when you need to realize. And okay. I think if in this, the great reset of Jonathan Shaw, I think there was also another interesting angle that you decided to go and start studying again. Yes. And, I, and the interesting thing is that you, you went in to study something which you knew could help people at an individual level because yeah. you went and you studied as a cognitive behavioral coach, yes, right? Exactly. So I, I was, um, I was going through this bad phase of having lost a project, lost money, and finding myself at the age of what was supposed to be a one year sabbatical, three years later. At 43. 43 or 44. Yeah. What shall I do? What's next? What's next? And I had nothing to do. I didn't, I didn't want to just do something. Um, I wanted to, no, I didn't want to do retail or consultancy. I wanted to do something. Yeah. To help. To, To help, but also I knew I needed myself deep mm. down subconsciously. So you, so you must getting help for yourself by getting, by getting to study what you needed best. Exactly. <laughs> so really I, I became my own client patient. Mm -hmm. I patient number one, patient number one. I used to go to London for eight months, one week a month. And that was a lot of time on, on my own thinking and rethinking life, resetting also being critical of yourself, mm -hmm. of your own brand. Mm -hmm. And there were things which I had to change and mold as well. So I became more aware of, okay, this is good. And this sometimes comes across like this, you're perceived like this. So in branding, we need to manage in a way, 
perception and mm-hmm. how people perceive us. Mm-hmm. It's not just how we think. And there has to be action behind the words. Exactly. So you did the hard work. So I went to the school of psychologists in London through a, and I, I got trained in cognitive behavior coaching. It sounds heavy, complicated, it's not. It's basically the way you think determines how you behave. Yeah. So when you have an issue, it's not the issue, it's not the situation, it's not the problem, it's how you think about it that matters. So calm down, analyze your thinking habits, your process, and move forward from there. So I regrouped and I started um, looking at cognitive behavior in teams, in individuals, in management and things like that. And it was fun, it, it's great. It, I wish I learned this 20, 30 years ago. I think it's interesting to say that you wish that, but I don't believe that you'd have been in a position to merge the insight and the education with the experience that you have had from your own life yes. and the exposure that you've had to multiple facets from so many different um, angles of the business and community and social um, angles to be able f- you know, t- to empower you to deliver what you delivered. Yeah. And that, I believe, took you or prepared you and got you, you know, in the perfect state that you could have ever been to tackle on what has been the latest biggest project effectively to help support and bring you know a number of different individually owned supermarkets together to kick off Malta's biggest largest Maltese chain of supermarkets which is now Wellbees right yeah that must have been one big heavy project it was, but it started, they had already been talking, discussing this. So they were towards the end of the merger. You were already chairman at that point when they decided? At one point, they had asked me to help many years ago. So this is, you know, they called chronologically me back. we're yes, right, yeah? They okay. called me back now recently, I think four years ago. Mm-hmm. And they were close to the merger. And they, they had some change in management. And they said, one of the directors reached out, hey, would you be interested to chair one meeting a month to see us through? I said, yes. Two months later, they say, hey, can you also chair the strategy group, which happens every week? I said, fine. Four months later, we merge, and then we started the projects, the rebrand. Of course. Which I worked closely with you, which was a process, amazing process. I learned a lot there, and um, I'm so proud of that work and the way we tackled the the emotional attachment that clients have with brands. Of course. And how if someone used to love a particular supermarket, you can't overnight destroy what they love because you have a new name. No. Because it's part of their community, it's part of their habits, it's part of what they do every day. Exactly. And you tackled effectively there was tower supermarkets, there was value supermarkets, there was park towers. And trolleys. And trolleys. So we could not tell people, hey, Wellbees is better now. Mm -hmm. No, it's only a name. So we tackled it and I'm I'm so proud of how we tackled it. but then the, the new change came again, because being on a board is great, you know. So we were driving change, doing the corporate transformation again. So I love change. I, I'm a change maker, I think. With all the good and the bad, I'm a change maker. So to answer the question from the very beginning. Exactly, I'm a change sure. maker. No, now, sure. now you gave me the answer. A change maker. I love it. And for me, give me a company. Give me an individual. Give me a project that needs to change. No one wants to ch- touch. Give it to me, give it to me, <laughs> I love it. So, um, and, but then they, we were looking for a CEO and for some reason they turned on to me. So I was interviewing people. I said, why don't you do it, John? So at the age of 49, 
I decided to be CEO and it's the first time in my life I went into employment. Wow. After so many years, I mean, what, the last employment Doing was? Doing mountains. Yeah, no, aviation. because even with the aviation, I was like a freelancer in the oh, States. Wow. So it's the first time I was on the books as being employed, happened to me now. And it's, it's as much as it's, it's great. I love what I do. I love the fact, job, really. I love the fact that the directors trusted me with something they built over the years because there's a lot of pressure and responsibility. Two generations of families. Yeah. Yeah, three, exactly. No? And we employ a lot of people. We buy from a lot of local importers. So we have, we're, we're a big player in the industry and we will grow more and I want to grow it more, but sustainably. But at the same time, I'm like suddenly my, not freedom because I have freedom, but it's, I'm employed. And again, it, it plays on you because mm -hmm. Usually it happens with the in the reverse. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, typical me, it's like, okay, move this, that, up, down, there's that. Mm -hmm. It's progress, don't get me wrong. Of it's course. a way forward and there's nothing wrong being employed. But for me, it was totally new. And again, coming back to that change, but I, I also believe that to be able to be in a position to do, to have the impact that you're having at some point in time, I think, you need to form part of something bigger because yeah. Jonathan Shaw alone would not have been able to no, do this. completely. And also the interesting thing is that being employed for so long, people within organizations who have been brought up and habitually grown to survive within organizations also feel uncomfortable then with doing such big change because you've done significant change and significant change within the organization, significant change within communities. You have changed the way people shop and buy. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting angle. Um, along this route, sports has played a very, very important part oh, of your yeah. life. And I've seen it. Um, in this morning, we're training together. It's, it, over the weekend, we're training together. I've always seen John Shaw as a huge fan and support of everybody who's trying hard. You have been a great cheerleader to many of us <laughs> out there. Not yeah. the sexiest of cheerleaders, <laughs> but definitely a cheerleader out there, yeah. you know, helping people really accomplish and feeling good about themselves. Because again, you're affecting, you know, the, the, what people are thinking about and how they're seeing themselves, which then affects behaviors. Last year, I think, or was it the year before, you went and you did probably the most significant race of your life. Yeah, last year. Last year. Something which many athletes out there, many endurance athletes out there would not even contemplate you know, taking part in. And I'd like you to talk a bit about those people who don't know what you did and how you did it, but more than the sporting endeavor, I'd like you to tap into what went through your head in those tough times where you needed to pick yourself up, but also where your partner needed to be yeah. picked up. So swim run, how did you get into that? We know, but let's just jump in straight into the, into the race. So you decided to do what? What okay, was the so race? It's a, it's a, 75 kilometer 75 kilometers in the Baltic Sea and the Swedish archipelago. So you swim and run across maybe 30, 40 islands and you run with a wetsuit, you swim with shoes and you keep on going down in a straight line. You have a teammate because of safety, because obviously it's not marshaled and monitored throughout, but you have a route and um, Robin ran with me, swam run with me. And I wasn't trained enough. You never trained enough, but you just yeah, go but, for it. But let's face it, you weren't trained enough because this is all of a sudden, you know, you got into the sport a couple of years before that. You're not a full-time athlete. Exactly. You're not a professional no, exactly. athlete. Exactly, because I train a lot, but you're not, an, for these races, you're not. An, but my, my aim was to go 
You're very fast. Long finish. distance endurance. Yes, exactly. And yes, done yes, yes, yes. 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 So we go, we go for it. I'm, you know, relatively okay swimming. So the swimming was not an issue. So it's 65 kilometer trail running, treacherous trail running, and 10 kilometers swimming in and out. But so you, you know how it is. Yeah. You have different, different. So in, we start in, in cold, dark. Oh yeah, but we had a good day. The rough weather was, was okay. not bad that day. So considering it was okay. Nature but treated you well. Exactly. So you go for it and you love it. You love it. You're racing with other athletes, a lot of pros, but it's the adventure, you know? John, and I want to stop you because I know that you're, you're really enjoying this part and, and you enjoy it, but I know that you went to some tough Yes, times. yes, of course. So so let's okay. go straight so to So 15K point. into the race, I get this massive spasm, hamstring injury. I'm actually falling onto the ground. So you have the pressure mentally that you have, you don't want to let yourself down. You don't want to let your partner down. Um, people, friends, knowing you're doing the race, not from an ego point of view, but you, yeah, you but there's the pressure. There's the pressure. You told everyone and you do want it. to do it. Of course, and you want to do it. I remember my marketing guy put it on Facebook on our company page. Good luck. So that's fifty thousand followers who know that I'm <laughs> no doing pressure. this race. No pressure. But anyway, so but you go through. So I walk, manage the pain, and then you start again. So in a twelve-hour race. And that's how long it took us. Your, the mind, the mind plays. But again, I, I think if you're solution focused, if you have the right approach, I was actually micro breaking the distances. I was yeah. driving Robin mad. I was hyper singing, tuning. I was psyching myself up to the race with rocky music. I know it's cheesy, but you know, you have but to psych yourself up. So when you're in the shit, you, you get these tools back. So I was humming tunes, I was this, micromanaging on my watch the distance. So with 50K left, 50 kilometers to go, I'm telling him we only have 300 meters to go because I was breaking the distance. And then I got out of my problem, then Robin got. So you, you need to support others. They need to support you. And this is teamwork. Yeah. And this is where you need to surround yourself with people who are not the best, that they are the best for you. Got yeah, it? Yeah. Because yeah. people try and look in forming teams and build brands, the best people in the market know who's the best for you. Yeah. So you do this experience. Yeah. Beautiful race. And Robin still speaks to you, <laughs> which is obviously great news. I think this is a, a great place to pause on this podcast. And I say pause because knowing you and knowing the change maker who now self-proclaimed or well, self uh you know, you kind of, you're definitely going to be on to bigger things and you're definitely going to be on to other changes. And of course, I'd love to see where that's going to take you. Even I. But before we go there, because everybody knows that you're not going to sit back and you're just going to yeah. just expect that things are going to, so you're going to be changing some other stuff soon, I'm sure. Even though I have no clue what they're at, but I'm excited to know what it is. Change is something that we all struggle with, okay? Except you. Most of us struggle with change. To people out there who are building brands, to people out there who've built brands and those brands are failing, and to people out there who are just at the very, very beginning of the journey, like if you had to pick three things, three values, three principles, or even one, but no more than three, lessons to keep people going, mantras that you, okay. are there any specific mantras that you keep reminding yourself? Yeah, so 
one of them which I use is everything will be okay. Okay. Just save it on your phone when you're going through a tough time, write it somewhere, look at it, read it, repeat it. Everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. Yeah. It always does. It's a matter of when and how, but everything will be okay. And if, it's, if, if it won't be okay, you couldn't do anything anyway on it. So, but just focus on that. Everything will be okay. Two, struggle is growth. Embrace struggle. If you want to grow your muscles, what do you do? You go yeah, to the gym. Resistance training. You go to the gym, yeah? So what if I tell you, see as mental struggle as your gym? Yeah. Without struggle, there's no growth. So if you start seeing repositioning struggle as growth, when you have struggle, you're going to embrace it. You're yeah. going to welcome it. So your mindset towards it is different. Give me struggle. Give me change. So I grow. Yeah. So you see, yeah. so you're already smiling at it rather than being mm -hmm. afraid. So flip it around. And the third mantra is um, just give it your best. And then you, can't, you just know that you gave it your best. Because yeah. if you gave it your best shot, even if you fail, you don't have regrets. But you've learned. You've learned, but you've given it your best. Because yeah. you'll have bigger regrets if you said, I should have done this, I should have given it more, I, should, I didn't give it my own, because then mm -hmm. it's you against you. Yeah. So really go push yourself and keep pushing yourself till you know that you've done your best. And then what because happens, happens, because we can't control everything. Of course. We can contain, not control. Learn how to live with something, mm -hmm. not control it. I think those are great lessons. John. That's it. As if. There's one last question. <laughs> In this changing, turbulent, great, beautiful wave life that you've led and surfed. Oh, yeah. Because you've surfed, you uh, you've surfed. You've surfed it well. Oh, yeah. you've, you've definitely you know, lived probably more than most people have lived in, in your That's lifetime. Right. And we've, we've been through one midlife crisis. There's probably another one around the corner. Oh, nice. God knows what's next. If you had to choose one track one piece of music as a soundtrack to your life story thus far, what would it be? The show must go on by Queen. Nice, fantastic. Because when I'm going through tough times, I play it. And obviously it's show, 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 close. Okay. I say show must go on. The show must go on. Just go on and see what happens. John, that this was- This is very private. I never shared this with anyone. I swear we won't tell anyone about it. Okay. 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 Let's there see. <laughs> One thing I want to tell you, don't trust anyone in marketing. John, thank you for Cheers. so much for your time. Thank You've you. been very, very generous for giving us your time this morning. I know you've oh, got pleasure. a lot of stuff no, on your plate. it's fine. I love this. Well, I really enjoyed it. And even though I've been knowing you for so many years, I learned a lot about you this morning. Oh, thank so, you. Thank you. Pleasure, for that. man. John, grazie. Cheers.